How's everybody doing? Good. Good. Uh, I noticed this weekend the, the numbers were a little bit lower. It is graduation weekend, so there's a lot of people not here. Is there any graduates graduated this weekend? A couple? Yeah? Yeah? Yeah, May graduation is the worst, right? Congratulations. Yeah, if you've never been to an MTSU graduation in May, there's like six million people that walk, and you wait there for three hours for your loved one, and it's like they just go up there and they go back, and you're just like, yep, that was it. So, uh, and some of us, it took six years to get there. And uh, walking was, walking was just like a principle by the time I was done. I was like, man, I've put so much, so much time into this, I'm going to walk. Uh, so, okay, I got a story for you. So if you haven't been to this church very long, you probably don't know I am deathly afraid of snakes. Don't like snakes. And it's not like cute to like put fakes, you know, fake snakes in my car or anything like that. Like I'll, I'll punch you. I don't like snakes. Uh, and so um, don't like snakes. And the other day I was mowing our backyard and our backyard is fenced in and there's this little corner. We have this uh, detached garage. And there's kind of like this unseen corner of our yard that's fenced in. No one really sees it. And there's a little gate that you go in there. And so it's kind of like neglected a lot of the time. And my neighbor last year had given me this pool for our kids. And it's one of those like, not inflatable pools, but like these big pools you fill up with water and it puffs up. And we used it for like three days last year. And then it's been in this pile kind of in the unseen corner of my backyard. And uh, so finally I'm like, I'm getting rid of this thing. I'm going to move it. And uh, so I go to move it before I mow the yard. And I move this thing and there's not a live snake. There's like a snake carcass under this thing. It's like this long and it's like halfway there and then it's like snake bone and it's just disgusting. And I freak out and I'm like, and I run inside and and, uh, I tell Alicia and I'm just like, yeah, there's this snake carcass. And she's like, okay. You know, she's washing the dishes and then I run back out there because it was a big deal to me. And I get the, (laughs) I get the pool onto the driveway and and I'm starting to like cut it up and throw it away and finally go to mow the grass again. And uh, you know, like when you see something creepy and you keep thinking there's something touching you. So I start the lawnmower and I start to push and I see this lizard. So obviously our backyard's like an amphibian conservatory or something, even though we're in the suburbs. And I see this lizard and uh, you would have thought I just saw like a double homicide because I just go, I go, oh God, like I just seen something. And I lifted my leg up like this and I, I ran back into the house and I told Alicia, I was like, there's this lizard and she's just... She just goes, okay. <laughs> All right, well, I'm going to go back, you know, and like <laughs> brave our backyard. And um, ended, ended up cutting all the grass. <laughs> this little like 10 by 10 section or something took me like two hours of, you know, just terrified, man. Anyways, there it is. We're just transparent around here. Obviously, I have no, you know, pride or dignity. So here we are. We're... Um, we're doing the book of Hebrews. We've been working on the book of Hebrews for a while now. We finished up chapter eight last week. And here's the idea that we left with, with chapter eight. It's this, is that we have an opportunity to change and to be empowered to live differently. So not only can Jesus forgive us of our sins by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can have empowerment to live a different life than we lived before. But The catch to that is we have to be willing to let go of the old ways in order to make room and to adopt the new ways. We talked about the temple and the old covenant. The old covenant had to disappear and go away in order for a new covenant, a new promise to be established. We have to do that personally with our own lives, okay? 
This week we're going to talk about this, and it's going to get a little heavy at the end. Um, chapter 9, we're going to talk about this idea. Do we fully comprehend the transaction of the cross? I know we wear the necklaces. A lot of you graduates, when you graduate, people buy you a Bible or they'll buy you something like a, some kind of journal with a cross on it. We wear you know, shirts with it or tattoos or bumper stickers or however we express our faith. There's nothing necessarily wrong with that. But do we fully understand what that represents? Do we fully understand that? And so in chapter 9, there's a little bit of a history lesson. Uh, it, it, there's a lot of reading in chapter 9, but it's not super dense. It's not going to take me a long time to get through it. But I hope to go back and revisit that question uh, before we leave this morning. Okay? All right. Everyone's doing okay, right? Okay, good. All right, let me pray for you guys. You're welcome to pray for me. We will jump into chapter 9, and we'll see, uh, we'll see where the Lord takes us, okay? Father God, I love you. Lord, I praise you and I thank you for everything you've done. Jesus, thank you for bringing everyone in this room today, God. You've put everyone in this room uh, for a reason. Everyone is here, God, for a specific time and for this specific place, Lord. And I just pray that you open up every heart, open up every ear, mind, eye, God, to, to see and to hear and to soak in what you have to say to all of us, Lord. Father, we also pray for every church in our community, God. Um, we pray for the bigger churches, the smaller churches, God. We pray that your kingdom is advanced and that, uh, that you are made more known in our city, God, and that people can be blessed by knowing who you are. God, keep your hand on me today as I speak. Make me gracious and make me kind, Lord, but also let us be firm in your word. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You should have got a notes handout when you walked in. It's got pretty much everything I'm going to say in it. Uh, it's also on version if you want to use your phone. And if you have a Bible, the book of Hebrews is right before the book of James in the New Testament, right after the book of Philemon. Okay, I'm going to read a little bit. I'll do my best to explain what we're reading. And uh, again, we'll see where the Lord takes us. Here we go. Now, the first covenant also had regulations for ministry and an earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was set up, and in the first room, which is called the holy place, were the lampstand, the table, and the presentation loaves. Behind the second curtain, the tabernacle was called the most holy place. It contained the gold altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant, covered with gold on all sides, in which there was a gold jar containing the manna, Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. The cherubim of glory were above it overshadowing the mercy seat. It's not possible to speak about these things in detail right now. But with these things set up this way, the priests enter the first room repeatedly, performing their ministry, but the high priest alone enters into the second room, and he does that only once a year and never without blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was making it clear that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed while the first tabernacle was still standing. This is a symbol for the present time during which gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the worshiper's conscience. They are physical regulations and they only deal with food, drink, and various washings imposed until the time of restoration. Now, if you haven't been here, let me explain what's going on. 
The last couple of chapters have been talking about the difference between the old covenant, the old agreement, the tabernacle, this building that people worshiped in, and the new way that we do Christianity, the new way that that we follow the true God after Jesus. So the tabernacle was glorious. It was this kind of portable sanctuary that they would bring with them through the Exodus, and then eventually they built a permanent temple in Jerusalem. Not only was the construction of it beautiful, not only was it precisely crafted, but all these different rituals that would go on in this tabernacle were foreshadowing and pointing to the glory of God and the glory of Jesus's coming, that the Savior was going to come and what he was going to do for his people. Now, the tabernacle also provided not only a place for worship, but kind of how you worship, regulations for worship. But the thing is this, it was made out of materials that could be destroyed. It was imperfect. It didn't cover all sin and take care of all the problems. And it was temporary. It was there for a time and a place, but that time and place has gone. And now there's a new way. And so the tabernacle, I'm going to explain a little bit about what this thing looked like. And I'll show you some pictures. The tabernacle is broken up into two main rooms, two main parts. The first room, if you were to walk through the first curtain of this tabernacle, you would step into what's called the holy place. Now, all the priests would do all these different daily tasks and light incense and present loaves of bread for the other priests and do all these things up at the front. The first room was called the holy place. It was 30 foot long, 15 foot wide, and it was 15 foot high. And in that first room, the lampstand would illuminate it. And I'll show you a picture of that here in a second. But the presence of God would illuminate the second room. And I'll get into that in more detail. So what you do, you walk into this first room, 30 by 15 by 15. And then if you continued to walk a little bit further, there was a veil that separated the first room from the second room that was 15 foot high. And it separated it. And the only one who could go into the second room, which was called the most holy place, or some of you who've been Christians for a long time, older translations called it the Holy of Holies, you would enter into this room on one day a year, the Day of Atonement. Only the high priest could go in there. He would make sacrifices for himself, and he would make sacrifices for all of the community. Now, nothing can contain God. We know that a curtain can't stop God. But what this curtain represented was the divide or the inaccessibility of the average man and woman and the presence of God. It was symbolic that there was a division between mankind and God. Now, what Jesus was going to come and do, what he's done in the past, is he was going to tear apart that barrier. Matthew 27, verse 51, that he was going to literally get rid of that curtain after he died, it ripped apart. And then metaphorically, now there will be no division between whoever wants to be in the presence of God and God. There will be no division between those two things. So if you walked into this room, first room, right before you go into the most holy place, there was an altar, a gold altar set up. And there's a lot of symbolism in this too. What they would do is they would continually, day and night, all the time, burn spices, burn incense, and there would just be kind of this slow, steady smoke that would come off this gold altar. And what that represented was the prayers of the people lifted up to God. So it was very visual. You'd walk in, you'd see this, and you'd be reminded that we're all trying to lift up these prayers and petitions to God. Now, the other thing that the altar represented is it represented Jesus himself. 
Jesus is the mediator, the go-between between us and God the Father. And so what Jesus did while he was on earth was offer prayers to the Father and he would intercede for his people. And that's what he would do. So again, there's this symbolism in the tabernacle and this altar symbolized the go-between, the thing that kept us from or allowed us to be in the presence of God was Jesus, or in this case, the altar. So if you made it through that curtain, which again, only one person could do one time a year, you made it through that curtain into the most holy place. The main object in this back room was one, one of the most talked about uh, uh, talked about objects in the entire Bible, which is the Ark of the Covenant. At the center of the most holy place, there was a gold box. It was made out of wood, but it was completely covered in gold. Four foot long, two and a half foot wide by two and a half foot thick, covered in all gold. Now again, probably the most talked about object in the entire Bible besides the cross itself. And what this represented, the Ark of the Covenant, is it represented God's throne on earth. Now we know God's throne is in heaven. The Bible says that, that's very clear. But this again was symbolic of the fact that God's presence was here on earth. Now no one knows whatever happened to the Ark of the Covenant. We know because of Steven Spielberg that the Germans have it, right? <laughs> a bad joke. Anyways, but it says in Revelation eleven nineteen that it is seen in heaven. We don't know what happened to the Ark, right? But it says, John, who wrote the book of Revelation, says, he mentions that he sees the Ark of the Covenant in heaven. So I don't know if God snatched it up or if God has made a new Ark or whatever the case, or it might just be symbolic, but it mentions it in Revelation 11. Now, what's fascinating about the Ark is this. It was a box and it had a lid that could be removed. And inside there was three different, very, very important treasures or memorabilia from the past, okay? The first one was this. There was a gold jar of manna. Now, if you go back to Exodus chapter 16, when all the Jews were going down the Mount Sinai uh, Peninsula on the way to the promised land through Egypt, there's not a lot of vegetation. There's not a lot of wild animals to catch. There's not a lot of sources for food. God miraculously rained down food from heaven. Someone saved some of that. I imagine one of the priests saved some of that and put that in the Ark of the Covenant in a gold bowl. What that represents is that no matter how bad the wilderness is, no matter how dry it is, no matter how scarce it is, God will always provide. It represents provision. The second thing that was in there was the staff of Aaron, who was Moses' right-hand man. I think he was actually older than Moses, but he was Moses' right-hand man. There was a time, if you go back to Numbers chapter 17, where Aaron had to reprimand the people and these, these, uh, uh, his dead staff, dead wood, budded new leaves. That was in there to warn people that they need to stay away from constant complaining and fault-finding. It was a reminder. Now, the most fascinating thing that would have been in the Ark of the Covenant, at least for me, was the two tablets where the Ten Commandments were originally written. They were also in there. Now, this defined that God has expectations of us. The Ten Commandments, we talked about this last week, the Ten Commandments cannot fix sin, they only expose sin. And so we see from the Ten Commandments being in the ark, this is what God's expectations of, our, of, of us is. And then we also see from the Ten Commandments that we cannot fulfill them without a Savior. So it points to the coming and dependency on Jesus Christ. So these three things were inside the Ark of the Covenant. Now on top of the Ark, again, there's this lid called the mercy seat. 
and the blood of the animal sacrifices would be poured or sprinkled upon this mercy seat. I'll show you a picture here in a second. There was two angels, cherubim, which if you get into the whole angel thing, would have been the second most powerful angels made by God. There would have been two of these looking at each other with their angel, with their uh, wings kind of draped over the Ark of the Covenant, facing each other. And now here's where we get, it sounds mystical, but it's just fascinating. This is where the presence of God was visible in this room. It's called the Shekinah glory. The word Shekinah simply means to dwell. This is where there was a physical manifestation, visible representation of God in this room. Imagine you're the high priest, right? In the first room, there's these big candles that illuminated the room. The second room you go into, it is the light of God's glory that lit up that second room. I don't know exactly what that looked like, but it had to be pretty intense if you were the individual walking into that. Now, this is not the best picture in the world. It is really, really hard to find something that is not super cheesed out when it comes to the, t- the, the temple. I guess the guys that have enough time to like reconstruct these things are just interesting people. So uh, I saw this picture. This was in my Bible. I took a picture of it with my phone, threw it up here for you. But it's pretty good. Over here on the left, we see the lampstand with the candles lit. Over here on the right, you see uh, uh, the loaves of bread for the priests to eat while they're in there doing their work. If you go back, you look and see the veil that separated the most holy place from the holy place and the altar of incense burning continually, day and night, all the time, uh, representing these prayers going up to heaven. Now, again, you walk through and you would see the Ark of the Covenant in the most holy place or the Holy of Holies. This is a pretty good representation of what they think it looked like. People have tried to build it all these different ways. Um, And again, we don't know exactly what the glory of God looked like as it shone around this thing or on top of this thing, whatever the case may be, but this is probably relatively accurate. So what they would do in this tabernacle is they did a multiplicity of different ceremonies, all of kinds of, of, of different things that they would do. And they would do all these things because God told them to, but these things did not bridge the gap between mankind and God. The priests did rigorous tasks. They did them daily. They did certain ones annually. Only the high priest could go in and offer sacrifices for himself and for the people. And all of this rigorous religious rituals that they would do All this did was roll back sin, push it back for a year, but it did not completely remove it. And what all these ceremonies show is that when Jesus eventually came and kind of took care of this, when he paid all of our debt and he took care of the, the dependency on all these rituals, it shows the enormity of what the cross did, that one action would take care of all of this stringent religious and ritualistic stuff. And so under the old covenant or agreement, that's a better word, I think, for for this. Under the old agreement, the high priest could only atone or pay for the sins committed in ignorance. The high priest couldn't even deal with rebellion, things that were done on purpose. They couldn't even touch that. And even the sins that were done in ignorance, an, an innocent animal had to be killed. Their blood had to be shed, had to be poured, all these different things mentioned in Leviticus that they had to do with these carcasses. And so even the access to God by the high priest was even limited. In ordinary people like you and I, we had no direct access to God, no connection to the Holy Spirit, none of that. And so Jesus was going to change all of that by the pouring of his blood 
Not an animal, but his blood was going to be shed. So look, when you're reading the Old Testament, it's really easy to read it and say, what the heck was the point? What was the point of all this ritualistic stuff? What was the point of all these, these, these rituals and this legalism that's kind of in the Old Testament? What was the point of all that? So not only were they not able to clear the conscience of the believer, but only roll away the sin and its effects, what it's pointing to, the entire Old Testament is pointing towards the solution. It was pointing towards the fact that Jesus was going to come and permanently fix the problem. The author says those things were a symbol for what we get to experience now through Jesus, meaning that it all pointed towards the ultimate solution. Now, here's the thing when you're studying the Bible. If you pick up any good book, any good story, and you start 75% of the way through, you're not gonna understand the character development. You're not gonna understand the plot development. Same thing with the Bible. If you just simply, I'm a big fan of starting from the beginning. Because, and again, I love Book of Matthew, it's my favorite book of the whole Bible. But even if you start there, you don't understand the enormity of why Jesus was even born if you don't understand the history before him. And when you go back and read all of this buildup before him coming, you have to take the entire book in its totality, not just in parts. Because when this book is taken in parts, that's when it's twisted and manipulated and misconstrued. That's how people get hurt. Next part. You guys still with me? Okay, good, good. But the Messiah has appeared, high priest of the good things that have come, in the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered into the most holy place once and for all, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow, sprinkling those who are defiled, sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more? Will the blood of the Messiah, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse our consciences from dead works to serve the living God? So all those things of the Old Testament were an arrow, right? They're all pointing towards the Messiah. But what the author is saying is, now he has come. And Jesus purifies believers, and he purifies us so we can live for him and so we can serve him. Jesus is essentially the real action behind all of the symbolism of the Old Testament. He has granted us direct access to God the Father. He has promised us blessings now on earth. doesn't mean life's perfect, but he's offered us blessings now and blessings for eternity. And though he has provided the means for us to have these blessings, not all people who say they follow Jesus have experienced these things. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. But what we see is the blood of animals could not redeem mankind. It can only fix the outside. But Jesus' blood was completely redemptive. What Christ came to do essentially was that dividing wall between humanity and God's spirit, that dividing wall, Jesus came to tear that apart, to remove that uh, partition between the two of us. And so salvation, we use these words a lot and we don't often explain what they mean. Salvation is simply a relationship with Jesus. That's what that is. We are saved 
when we have a relationship with him. And having a relationship with Jesus results in blessings now and eternally. It results in forgiveness of sin, removal of shame and guilt. It gives us confidence in him that leads to us having confidence in ourselves so we can overcome our fear, our depression, our anxiety. All of these things have been bought and paid for, purchased, ready to be picked up, but we must go claim them. It's just like when you come home from work, right? And FedEx has stuck that thing on your, on your front door. We have a package for you. It's been bought. It's been paid for. It's been delivered to our main headquarters. You just got to come by and pick it up. You don't have to, you haven't done anything to earn that. It's been sent to you. You just have to take the initiative to go claim what is yours. Salvation is essentially the same way. We must go receive the package that Jesus has bought for us. And unlike the, the, the rituals of the Old Testament, they just worked on the external person. They didn't work on the conscience. They didn't work on the mind. They didn't work on the heart. They just fixed the exterior. And listen, if the blood of the animals can fix the exterior, how much can the blood of the one that created the animals fix the interior? How much can it get to the core of us and not from the outside in like religion often tries to do, but from the inside out, Jesus works on us. Jesus goes right to the heart of mankind and he looks at this, not all this, he's looking at this and everything changes once he gets into your heart. There is a cleansing effect that Jesus Christ has. Jesus chose to pursue us through his eternal spirit, he offered himself the big word voluntarily. He didn't have to do it. And he was unblemished and we were rebellious. He did not deserve punishment. I did, you did, not him. But he voluntarily took that for us. And he cleans our consciences from dead works. And through Jesus, get this, we can live at a higher standard we can value us because Jesus values us. Do you know why Jesus tells us not to be promiscuous? That means have sex with a lot of different people. Not because he's a tyrant, not because he just wants to lay down rules and he doesn't love you. He sees such a value in you, young lady, young man. He sees such a value in you that he knows that you need to be saved for one person that loves you more than anything. Are you guys awake out there? Okay, just making sure. We still believe in purity, right? Okay. The reason why God doesn't want you intoxicated is not because he's a tyrant and he's a dictator. He knows that you might do something foolish that can ruin your life in the moments of that intoxication and that in moments of getting high. So he says, don't do that. You're more valuable than that. And if we start to understand how much he values us, then we can kind of start to stand up a little bit straighter and not in a narcissistic selfie kind of way that we respect ourselves, but we start to, do, we start to have dignity. We start to have pride because we're sons and daughters of the King of Kings. And then when we go outside of here, and we meet people that don't believe like we do or talk like we do or think like we do, we can value them as well because if you meet any human, no matter how horrid, no matter how different they may be than you, if they are a human being, they are also made in the image of God and we are to value them as well. So therefore, 
He is the mediator of a new covenant, a new agreement, so that those who are called might receive the promise of the internal inheritance. Because a death has taken place for redemption from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Where a will exists, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will is valid only when people die, since it is never in force while the one who made it is living. That is why even the first covenant was inaugurated with blood. For when every command had been proclaimed by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats along with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and he sprinkled the scroll itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God has commanded for you. In the same way, he sprinkled the tabernacle and all the articles of worship with blood. According to the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So, Jesus came essentially to fix the problem of sin. Now, sin is another word we throw out in church all the time, but we probably don't define it the way we should. Sin is any rebellion to God's design. Let's go back to intoxication. Sin is found in intoxication because God says very clearly, he wants you sober-minded. 2 Peter 5.8, I, I might be wrong. But there's several times in the New Testament, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion looking to devour you. He wants us sober. So the rebellion to sobriety is intoxication. And that is a sin because it's rebellion to God. And so Jesus secures forgiveness for sins, and Jesus is the mediator. He's the broker of the deal to get us to be reconciled with our Father. He mediates for us. He's also the ransom for us. For all of our rebellion, all of our sin, he has liberated us from spiritual oppression because he paid for all of our mistakes. But we must trust him in order to receive our inheritance. And I love the example that he uses right here. The author says, wherever there's a will, someone has to die. Wherever a will exists, the one who wrote the will must die in order for the recipient to receive their inheritance. So Jesus wrote the will, he wrote the covenant, he wrote the promise, and then he died. And he died for us so we can receive the blessings that God has for us. Now, if you go way back to the book of Genesis, if you're curious about this whole, why does blood have to be a part of this whole thing? A, it's because God said so. And whatever God does, it's good, whether we understand it or not. And so way back in the book of Genesis, the first sin that ever took place was rebellion towards God. Don't eat that. We're going to eat this. God walks into the garden, says, hey, where are you guys at? We're hiding because, listen, we're ashamed. So the first thing God does is he kills some animals, he makes clothes for Adam and Eve, and he covers up their shame. And ever since then, there's always taken blood to cover up rebellion to God. Innocence has to pay the price for the guilty. It's always been like that from the very beginning. And all of that in the Old Testament foreshadows the ultimate innocent blood that will be shed. So Moses taught the commands of God, and he sprinkled blood, blood of calves, along with all these other lists of crazy ingredients. He would sprinkle the blood over the word of God, the scrolls of the word. He would throw it on the people. Sounds like fun, right? He would throw it on all the worship stuff. 
over the tabernacle itself. And what this did is it symbolized that Christ's blood will cover everything. It will seal his word. It will seal his people. Ephesians 1.18, I think, that he will do this and it will cover us all up. And that's what it was symbolizing in that moment. And what Moses would do when he would throw the blood on the people is he would say something that sounded very similar to what Jesus said when he inaugurated the Lord's Supper. That's when we take the, the bread and the juice, which symbolizes the body and the blood of Jesus. He said something very similar. This is the blood covenant that God commanded for you, similar to what Christ said in Matthew 26. And again, all this blood talk, the reason why there is so much of it is it points towards the severity of sin. When you rebel against the creator, that's pretty severe. It's so severe that it takes blood to cover that up. And only the blood of Jesus Christ was sufficient to cover the sins of all of mankind. That's you and me. Only the blood of the perfect sacrifice could do that. Not all the animals. It had to be something greater than that. And in this last part, we'll see what that kind of leads to. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of these things in the heavens to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves to be purified with better sacrifices than these. For the Messiah did not enter a sanctuary made with hands, only a model of the true one, but into heaven itself, so that he might now appear in the presence of God for us. He did not do this to offer himself many times as the high priest of the sanctuary did yearly with the blood of another. Otherwise, he would have had to suffer many times since the foundation of the world. But now he has appeared one time at the end of age for the removal of sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for people to die once, and after this, judgment. So also the Messiah, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. So the cross never had to be repeated. It was a one and done thing. One time. The processes of the tabernacle were just a copy they were a, a metaphor, symbolic of heavenly things. And the better sacrifice that was going to be offered was Jesus. And when it mentions sacrifices, plural, it shows that all the different rituals, all the different sacrifices, all the different things that they did could not stack up to the one thing that Jesus did. The one thing that he did. It couldn't all stack up. So when we take all the talent of our churches, when we take the good deeds that we do, when we take all the benevolence, when we take all the church attendance, when we take all the study and the prayer and the sacrifices and the giving that we can all pull together, even at our best, we are just a distorted reflection of God's goodness. Even at our best, and no amount of deeds that we do stack up to him. No amount of good things we do. And so the work of Christ is essentially restated. The author is trying to drive this point home. There's a bunch of people reading this letter at this time who knew who Jesus was, but they were starting to divert themselves from that. They're starting to turn away from that. 
And he says the better sacrifices are Jesus's work that he did in the past and what he does in the present. What he did in the past, Jesus, if you've never heard anything about this, in the past, Jesus died for us on the cross, rose again, raised himself from the dead, and poured out his spirit on his believers. That's what he did. What he is doing now, right now, as we're talking to each other, is Jesus is interceding for us to God. He's trying to connect humanity to the creator. That's what he's doing. And he represents us in front of God. And he accomplishes things for us that we could never do without him. He also enabled us to have the Holy Spirit inside of us, the comforter, the counselor, that we can have comfort from God. We can have peace from God. We can also have words of counsel and words of wisdom that come out of us by the power of the Holy Spirit to help others. And unlike the sacrificial animals that had no choice, Jesus did this by his own accord. He did this voluntarily for us. And now what the Jews were struggling with, see if you can wrap your brain around this. The Jews were so familiar with repetitious sacrifice that the idea of Jesus dying once and for all, the idea of salvation through grace, they could not wrap their brain around. Get this, they were so dependent on religion that a relationship with Jesus blew their mind. Hello, Church of the South. They thought that going to a building all the time made them holy. And the author was saying, going to a building is not what makes you holy. Rituals and religion are not what make you holy. It's having a deep relationship with the creator that now all of us have the opportunity to do. That's what makes you holy. But they wanted rules. They wanted laws. And that's not the way Jesus operates. It's through relationship. And so the author made it clear. Jesus showed up on earth one time he died voluntarily for your sins. He did it once and for all, and it doesn't need to happen again. That's what the author said, that you are saved by faith through grace or by grace through faith, that that's how we are saved. And so he also said that he's gonna appear a second time. He came down to earth one time, and he's, come, he's gonna come back to earth another time. In these last two verses, 27 and 28, this is heavy stuff. Just like all people have an appointed time to die, Jesus had an appointed time to die as well. Jesus had an appointed time to resurrect. Listen, and all of you will have an appointed time to resurrect. Be the day of judgment. We will all be resurrected. We will all be given bodies again. And we will stand in line. And the difference between our resurrection and Jesus' resurrection is when he comes back, we will be judged by him and he will be the judge. When Jesus comes back a second time, it will not be to forgive sin. I know we don't like to talk about this in church, but it will be to judge sin. He will judge the works of mankind. And for those who have lived their life in obedience to Christ, that's when he will offer, he will fulfill our salvation. We will be with him in eternity. So that thing we wear on our necklace, that tattoo or that bumper sticker or that shirt or that funny catchphrase or whatever we have, the book, the, the, the journal that has the religious symbols on it. Do we really understand? Do we understand the weight? Do we understand the weight of even calling ourselves Christians, followers of Jesus? Do we understand that transaction? 
The reason why the Old Testament, the reason why books of, like the book of Leviticus and the book of Chronicles, it has all the chronological order and all these different, the, the law of Moses and the writings of Moses and the Torah, the reason why all these things are so important is all the Old Testament protocols show the enormity of what Jesus did in one single action, the cross. It shows the weight. It shows the heaviness. It shows the liberation. And what it does, the, the transaction of the cross, is it not only saves us from sin and shame and legalism and eternal damnation, it doesn't just save us from that. It saves us right now from ourselves. How many of you, if we're being honest, we always hear the cliche thing, right? I'd be dead in a ditch if it wasn't for Jesus. It was after my third time that I tried to take my own life that I found Jesus. How many of the rest of you in here, if it wasn't for Jesus, you'd be dead. You'd be lost. You'd be completely torn apart. Look, even if there's not a literal fire and brimstone hell, put millions of people concentrated in one area without any rules, without any regulations, without any goodness. What do we do? We'd rip ourselves to shreds. Jesus saves us from ourselves, and we need to understand that we are completely incapable of any goodness apart from God. We are completely incapable of goodness apart from God. Even when you meet the best person in the world, but they have no relationship with him, our good deeds are like filthy rags compared to the righteousness of Jesus. There's no goodness, the Bible says, apart from God. So do we, again, do we understand? Do you understand the severity and the impact of what we're doing right now? That God is going to come back. Jesus is going to come back again, but he's gonna come back to those who are waiting for him. So I ask you, I ask myself this, and I have not been perfect. Where are my eyes fixed? Are they fixed on economics? Are they fixed on entertainment? Are they fixed on politicians? Are they fixed on governments? Are they fixed on sporting events? What are we looking at? Or are we still a people that glance up at the sky occasionally and say, Lord, come quickly. Come quickly. Is there still a desire in the heart of the believer? Man, I know life sometimes is great. Seeing my little girls be born and seeing my wife and just... We've been blessed in a lot of ways. But I don't know how you are. Sometimes I look out at the night sky and I'm like, God, come on. Come quickly. Come quickly. Do we love our husbands so much that we're just yearning, yearning? Where are our eyes fixed? Where do our priorities lie? What's the most important thing you spend your money on? Where does your time go? What do you do with your resources and your affluence? Where are your priorities? Jesus said, where your treasures are, that's where your heart will be also. So if you say, I follow Jesus, I love him more than anything. But if you never speak to him, if you never pray, if you never read the word, if you never give your time, your money, your energy to the work and the advancement of the kingdom of God, you can tell me all day long you follow Jesus, but most of you don't. You follow your material possessions. You follow sports. You follow entertainment. We follow politics. Where are our priorities? If we're a nation that claims 65% Christianity, do our priorities reflect that? 
Murfreesboro, Tennessee, do we reflect that to all the big, enormous buildings and all the people who are sitting in them right now? Does our city reflect that? Where are our priorities? Here's the big one, guys, and I love you. I love you, and I hope you know that I love you. This is the one that has really gotten under my skin this week. Are we fluid enough to let God interrupt our lives? Well, yes, Corey, of course I am. Guys, um, we have the opportunity here in a second when I pray. We're the last service. There's no more cars coming into the parking lot. I know that you need to eat lunch. God forbid the Baptists get there before us, you know? I mean, right? I know you got things to do. I know you got work tomorrow. But at the end of the service, we will pray and we will offer the Lord's Supper. The representation, I know it's just matzo bread and juicy juice. I know that's what it is. But that is a representation, listen, of the Savior that most of us claim to follow. That is a representation of the fact that He willingly got on a cross and was crucified for your mistakes and my mistakes. And guys, I love you. It breaks my heart when 75% of you, because the lines are long, I know they're long. We're getting more communion tables made. I know they're long. But some of you are so concerned with lunch that 75% of the world won't get to eat today. But you're so concerned with lunch that you don't take the time to take the Lord's Supper with your family. That makes me feel like I have dropped the ball as your pastor. That maybe I have not taught that well enough. That maybe I haven't explained to you the enormity of what that bread and that juice represent. And guys, if you go without a meal or if you go without food for a month, more than you need bread that fills your, fills your stomach, you need the bread of life. And that only comes through communion with Jesus. I'm not saying that this stuff is mystical. And if you don't take communion every week, that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is you have the opportunity to commune, not just with God, but with fellow believers. But I feel, I feel like some of you will be damned if God interrupts your time. I love you. I love you. But I feel like some of you just will not let it. God, I'm busy. The game Lunch, appointments, girlfriend, work, school. God, when I get done with those things, I'll get to you. He is the creator. He is our God. And I've been guilty too, guys. I've been distracted. I've been distracted. And the Lord has worked me over this week. Corey, you can put together great lessons. You can build a big church. But if you do not have a relationship with me, which leads me to the next question. We're a people that is so confident that we're saved. But there's a lot of us, I don't know if we have the biblical evidence to support that claim. People all the time come up to me. I'm cheating on my wife. I'm addicted to porn. I cheat on my taxes. I do all these things, but I'm not worried about my salvation. And I'm like, I am really worried about your salvation. I'm extremely worried. Well, I did a sinner's prayer. That's not a biblical thing. That's something that man made up in the last 75 years. That's not a Jesus thing. That's a man thing that has given you a false sense of security. And you think because you said something when you were 13 that you can live like junk for the rest of your life and still be okay with God. 
That's not a relationship. Therefore, that is not salvation. And we have this false sense of security. And you need to look up the fruit of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit. And if those things are not coming out of you, not that you have to be perfect, but if those things are not emanating out of you, you might need to go back to the drawing board. I love you, and I love you. That's why I'm saying these things. Not because I don't love you, and not because I'm not at fault as well. But we've got to step back. That leads me to the last one. If I were to go through this room, I bet 75 or 80% of you would definitely say, I've experienced the grace of God. I've experienced it. I've given my life to him. I've experienced There's people in here who've been healed of cancer. There's people in here who've seen just miraculous things happen. There's people in here whose marriages have been saved and delivered of, of, of addictions and all these different things. And guys, I do it too. I'm not picking on you. But if we've experienced the grace of God, where is our passion? Kyle let me read an email and I hope I don't embarrass him. He let me read an email that someone sent to him a couple of weeks ago. I kid you not. An email complaining because he and a couple of the other young ladies on stage were bouncing around way too much and it was a distraction. Listen, if worship distracts you, heaven is not where you want to hang out for eternity. That's... And the other thing, Kyle's a much better person than me. He sent a really nice email back. And all I can think is, man, whoever sent that, if you prayed for 12 years for God to send you a kid and every doctor told you it would never happen, and your wife walks around with a little baby, let the guy jump around, right? Right? And so my thing is this, though. Kyle's not the only one that's experienced grace. Let me turn it up on his ear. If you're breathing right now, you have way more than you've ever earned from God. And I'm not trying to be a jerk. Guys, I do it too. I do it too. I look at what the look, I look at you. There might be 2,500 people here this weekend. But I never knew God would entrust me with that. And I spit in God's face and I forget his grace. We all do it. But guys, we've got to go back to the source. We've got to humble ourselves in front of the cross again. We've got to say, God, forgive me. I've been distracted. God, forgive me. I've taken it for granted. God. We need to find that urgency. We need to find that passion. We need to tap back into the source. I love you. I gotta hope you know that I love you. But man, if it takes you a little bit longer to celebrate the Lord's Supper, you'll live. You'll live. I know you got places to go. I know you got people to see. But if your relationship with him is not where it needs to be, that is everything. Everything, everything. Would you bow your heads with me, please? As your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, you know, I've been married for 12 years. And uh, I dated Alicia for seven years before that, so 19 years I've been with her. I love my wife <laughs> more than any human ever. Love her. Love her. She's perfect. 
Sometimes, though, you get working so much, you get distracted, times get hard, you get low on money, whatever the case may be. And you start to put things on the back burner. Not if you've ever been there, though. But then one day, like, we'll be in the kitchen, and, and I'll look at her, and I'll just be reminded, wow, she's the best thing. She's the best thing. And, and, and it sparks something back up in you again. It's the same thing with the Lord. We get saved. We have a relationship with Him, and then life gets crazy, right? Things happen, distractions. You might have got hurt in a church. It doesn't matter, whatever the case may be. And we just lose focus. And man, this is going to sound cheesy as your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed. Some of you need to go on a date with the Lord again. You need to block out some time and you need to get alone with Him. And you just say, God, I miss you. It's my fault. It's not yours. You need to let the Holy Spirit fill you up again. You need to brew a pot of coffee and sit in a quiet room and just talk. And just reconnect and rekindle that fire that was there because everything hinges on that relationship. When he comes back the second time, it will not be to forgive your sin. You have that opportunity right now as we speak. The next time he will come back, it will either be to usher you into eternal paradise or he will judge. He will judge the works that we've done. If you're not saved in here, there's people up here. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus, you don't have to come to the front. We don't do that whole thing. But if you have questions, the men and women up here to my left, you're right. They'll answer them to the best of their abilities. If you need prayer for anything, guys, anything, anything, nothing too small or too big, come over here and let these men and women pray for you. Here's where I think most of you, though, wait in line and get your communion if you feel like, you, like you're comfortable doing that. Everyone's welcome to take communion. You just need to ask Jesus to forgive you of your sins. I think most of you in the room need to get your communion. You need to sit down with either you or your family. You just need to talk to the Lord for a couple of minutes. Don't worry about where you need to be. Don't worry about where you need to go. Just talk to your Savior. Father, I love you. God, forgive me, Corey, not this crowd. I'm asking you, God, forgive me. I, I have made your grace cheap. Father, I have taken for granted salvation. I've taken for granted what you've done for me, and I've taken for granted, God, just your friendship. I've taken it for granted. I have forgotten, God. Forgive me. For everyone in this room who may be in a similar situation to me, be gracious, Lord. I know you will be. You're a perfect heavenly father, God. Lord, let us reconnect. Give us passion. Give us urgency. Give us a desire to want to be closer to you, God. And Lord, fill us up so much with your Holy Spirit that it runs off into our spouses and our kids and our neighbors and our schools and our jobs. Lord, we love you, God. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys are welcome to help yourself to communion and prayer. Thank you guys so much.